Hi there, and welcome to another OSLA podcast from the 2022 ANZIX Clinical Trials Group NUSA Conference. My name's Todd Fraser. Prevention of infection is an important part of surgical management. Tricia Peel is an infectious diseases physician from the Alfred Hospital and Monash University and is the principal investigator of the Calypso study, which is looking into the prevention of sternal wound infections following cardiac surgery. Tricia, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Todd. Thanks for having me here. It's great to be able to come and, and chat to you today. Tricia, how big is the problem of surgical site infections in cardiac surgery? It's a, it is a big problem for our patients. Uh, so we know in those patients who undergo surgery, about uh, 8% of those patients will, will potentially get a surgical site infection. Uh, some of these infections, they range from superficial infections, so just uh, infections involving the skin only, but some of the infections can be deeper, um, including mediastinitis and endocarditis. Uh, and these patients, these infections cause a lot of suffering for our patients. So they frequently need to be readmitted to hospital. They may need further surgery. They frequently require um, prolonged courses of antibiotic therapy. Um, and it can also lead to significant pain and anxiety as well for our patient cohort. Um, we also know that it can lead to increased hospital costs. Uh, so it's got both a burden for our patients, but also um, impacts the hospitals as well. I guess the other thing that uh, we're always concerned about is that uh, the bacteria that we're encountering that are causing these infections are becoming increasingly resistant to the, our um, mainstay antibiotics. Uh, so we're worried about what the sort of impacts uh, of these multi-resistant or these resistant bacteria might be on this patient cohort. Now, the Calypso study is looking at an approach to uh, prevention of surgical site infections in these patients. What does the current evidence base uh, look like um, for, for pre prevention of infection at time of surgery? Yeah, so we have a number of strategies uh, that we employ to try to reduce the risk of surgical site infection in our patients. So that's post-operative wound infections. They uh, And one of them, and probably one of the more important ones, is surgical antimicrobial prophylaxis. So this is when we administer an antibiotic prior to the start of surgery uh, to try to reduce the risk of surgical site infection. And there's a lot of data to support this practice in uh, many types of surgery, but particularly in cardiac surgery. So there are actually placebo-controlled trials where they undertook surgery in patients uh, and either gave them an antibiotic or didn't in cardiac surgery. It seems quite, um, I'm sure everyone would find that quite surprising nowadays, given it's such common practice. Uh, but we found from those uh, placebo-controlled studies that it reduces the risk of surgical site infection fivefold. So certainly that's a well-established and well-embedded practice. I guess the, the question that we're now focusing on is, do we need to give the antibiotics after the surgery? So once the wound's closed, do we need to continue prophylaxis? And I guess that's the area that uh, the Calypso trial will be focusing on. So the WHO currently recommend against prolonged use of antibiotic therapy. Um, is, I presume that's exactly what's happening in practice. <laughs> uh, yes, because everyone loves following guidelines. Um, no, so we know the WHO uh, came out in 2016 and recommended against giving antibiotics 
postoperative for all surgery, including cardiac surgery. But we know that uh, our that our surgeons haven't been uh, enthusiastic about that, that there has been poor uptake of that into practice. So we know from data from Australia-wide um, prevalence studies uh, that only about 22% of uh, patients undergoing cardiac surgery will only get prophylaxis in that intraoperative period only. So I guess, you know, in 78% of cases, no, the surgeons uh, haven't taken that recommendation on board. Uh, that's a very interesting statistic. So what are the potential reasons why that practice may have been established? Yeah, so we've done a lot of work where we've gone and spoken to our surgical colleagues um, and asked them the reasons why they uh, haven't been uh, taking up that recommendation. And there's a couple of really important things that we've we found the first thing that we found is the surgeons feel that their practice, they have good outcomes with their current established practice. Uh, they feel that, that it is the best practice for their patient cohort that they see. So they're very reluctant to do anything to change, particularly when you know the consequences of a surgical site infection. So uh, certainly the, the concept of in their hands, they have good outcomes. And so it would take a lot for them to change practice. The second thing is, I guess, tied to that is the surgeons feel a very strong sense of ownership of risk. So they really take it to heart when, uh, pardon the pun, but they really take it to heart when the patients get a surgical site infection, uh, which is, again, understandable. So they, in many ways, will do anything that they can to prevent these patients getting an infection. And so that tends to promote I guess, a, a more conservative approach, so being uh, more likely to use antibiotics and stop early, um, particularly uh, given their experiences. And the final thing is that when you actually tease out the evidence, the recommendation for stopping antibiotics once a wound is closed in cardiac surgery is not that strong. Uh, and so we know that, uh, and but also the surgeons are very well aware of the limitations of that evidence. So I think until we can actually answer that question, reassure the surgeons that their patients are going to have uh, as good an outcome if we stop it after surgery as with continuing post-operative doses, I don't think they're going to be uh, willing to take up that recommendation. As you say, there seem to be multiple components of this cultural change that need to be addressed, and one of those is obviously the evidence base, which is where Calypso comes in. What is Calypso and can you tell us about the study? Yeah, so I guess we, from talking to the surgeons, we wanted to try to develop a trial that would answer these questions and provide some assurance to the surgeons that we'd have as safer outcomes for their patients with just using intraoperative only. So this was um, the genesis of the Calypso trial, which is a uh, randomised placebo-controlled trial it's a non-inferiority trial, uh, and we've also built in an adaptive component to this trial. And in this trial, we're looking at three arms. So we're looking at giving intraoperative only prophylaxis, so stopping once the wound's closed, giving up to 24 hours of prophylaxis, and giving up to 48 hours of prophylaxis. Uh, in this instance, we're using kefazolin as a prophylaxis, which is 
standard of care and, and the most commonly used antibiotic. And we developed this to really try and reflect what's happening in real world practice. So to cover off on, on all the possible combinations that the surgeons do use uh, and really work with them to try and build this evidence base and then to really then translate it into practice. Who's being included in the study? So we're looking at patients undergoing uh, cardiac surgery involving a mediastinotomy. We're trying to keep it a very pragmatic trial, so trying to minimise the exclusion criteria that we have. Um, so they're, they're pretty broad inclusion criteria. Obviously, if someone's allergic to the kefazolin, uh, we can't uh, recruit those patients. Uh, if they have certain resistant bacteria like methicillin-resistant Staph aureus because of the prophylaxis required for those patients, obviously anyone who's undergoing more complex surgery like cardiac transplant and, and so on are also ex excluded. Uh, and then patients who have renal failure because of the changes in the dosing, uh, we've opted to exclude those patients. What outcomes will you be looking for? So we're looking at, uh, as our primary outcome, we're looking at surgical site infection, which is a pretty standard uh, um, outcome that we look at in these trials. We're using the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC guidelines uh, and definitions for um, surgical site infection, uh, again, which is very commonly used in these types of trials. Uh, so we're looking uh, for superficial infections. So that's just involving the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Uh, we look at that out to 30 days. And then for deeper uh, and organ space, so those more complex infections like sternal osteomyelitis, uh, mediastinitis, endocarditis, we're looking out to 90 days as our time horizon. And we'll look at that as a composite endpoint, but also then look at the individual components as part of the secondary analysis or secondary outcomes. Uh, the other secondary outcomes that we're interested in is also whether it impacts on uh, healthcare-associated infections. So potentially that also uh, may, uh, having a longer course of antibiotic may or may not um, reduce the risk of healthcare-associated infections. And then we've got safety outcomes. So we're particularly looking at um, allergic reactions to the cefazolam. Uh, but also acute kidney injury. We do know that uh, prolonging the antimicrobial prophylaxis potentially does increase the risk of acute kidney injury. Uh, and also we're looking to make sure we're not seeing more resistant bacteria in the surgical site infection. Uh, so again, that's an important secondary outcome and a safety outcome. The other thing which we've built into this trial, which is fascinating for me as an ID doctor, is we're wanting to see if it also impacts on the gut microbiome. So that's the bacteria in your gut. And whether having longer durations means that you get more resistant bugs and also whether it, it lasts for a longer time or whether it goes back to normal. So that will be, uh, for me, a really exciting part of this study, looking at, at how the antibiotic prophylaxis affects your gut microorganisms. And Tricia, you described this as a non-inferiority trial a little earlier. Just in brief, what does that involve and how do you go about setting the thresholds for a non-inferiority trial? So, yeah, with this trial, 
we have uh, chosen a non-inferiority, which means that we're wanting to see if the intraoperative only doses is as safe as or is as effective. So we're not looking to see if it's better, but really just if it's as good as, I think is, is probably the best way to phrase it. We chose this approach because we thought that it's biologically unplausible that giving a single dose to multiple doses would be better. And in fact, some of the, when you look at the um, trial data from those early trials uh, that looked at one versus multiple doses in cardiac surgery, it seemed to suggest that there potentially was a benefit with it. So that was the rationale for that. But also we think giving fewer doses might have a safety advantage. So we think it might be associated with a lower risk of acute kidney injury and also um, reduces the risk of emergence of antimicrobial resistance. And administering one dose or giving the dose during surgery without post-operative doses obviously means the nurses aren't having to give repeat um, prophylaxis in, in the post-operative ward. So again, a potential, uh, although probably not a huge um, cost, but potentially um, has a reduction in cost with fewer doses. Uh, so that was really the rationale. So one of the things then you have to do when you're talking about is, is it is it as good as or is it as safe as, is to work out what level of comfort everyone is has with the level of uh, goodness or safety, I guess. Um, so what, uh, what would be the margin that you'd accept as a, a clinically acceptable difference between, for example, the um, 24 hours versus the intraoperative only. And so this is the, the non-inferiority margin. Uh, so there's a couple of ways that you can define it, and there is some really great guidance documents from the FDA and EMA about how to arrive at, at this non-inferiority margin. One of the ways is that you look at all the placebo-controlled trials to see what was the difference that they observed and that could potentially the 95% confidence interval in that instance could be your non-inferiority margin. When we did this, the 90, that 95% confidence interval was 8.1%. So that means that you would, uh, that that difference could be up to 8% uh, before we'd consider it to be inferior, um, which is quite a large difference and and really when we uh put that to the stakeholder group they really didn't like that idea and I agree it's implausible so there's another a couple of other suggestions so uh that you have that uh non-inferiority margin so again you get four percent which again is um quite a large margin uh, but then we went with an option where we came up with clinical consensus, so discussing with the experts, looking at the literature, uh, and we arrived at a margin of 2.5%. Uh, it was felt to be a, a reasonable uh, and clinically acceptable margin. So really what we're saying with that is we're assuming in our cohort there's a baseline rate of 8% of infection in that cohort. So we're saying that we will if the rate of infection in the non-inferiority arm is 10.5%, then uh, that would be considered non-inferior. It sounds very challenging to get that sort of consensus. 
Yes, I mean, sometimes when you talk to the surgeons, and quite understandably, uh, if you ask them what what difference they'd accept, it's usually 0%. But um, obviously, we have to uh, be aware of it, that there are a range of outcomes and a range of possibilities. So trying to come up with something that fits with their, within their comfort zone um, to make sure that they're comfortable with changing practice, for example, uh, but that is actually plausible and achievable as well. Trisha, whereabouts is Calypso up to now? So we have received funding through the MRFF, which is really great. It's great to be supporting these trials. So uh, we have uh, got ethics approval um, and we are in the process of uh, uh, finalising database and study drugs. So we're hoping to start recruitment uh, towards the end of this year, so November, December and into the new year, really rolling out the study. Uh, so it's really exciting to be able to see this coming to life and, and coming to fruition. Are you still looking for sites? We're always looking for sites. It's you know it's great to have a broad range of groups involved. We really want to make sure that we're reflecting practice, that it's generalizable. Um, and uh, so yes, certainly would would welcome any sites. Anyone who's interested uh, can certainly get in touch with our team. So if uh, people listening to this are interested, how do they get in touch? So uh, we have a website for Calypso. Um, we also have a fabulous program manager called Paige Druce, who uh, is uh, the main point of contact, but we can certainly provide some of those details uh, to, as part of this process. But, yes, yeah, certainly welcome anyone to, to inquire and get in touch with us. And we'll include those details on the details page for this podcast. Uh, Tricia, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast and good luck with Calypso. Thank you very much, Todd. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. All of Osler's content and features are completely free. Get access to our podcast interviews as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. You'll also be able to access our logbook and any Osler learning you do is automatically recorded in your free CPD diary. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.